Dr. Robert Fenoy, Old Testament History, Lecture Number 4. We were looking at the propositions developed by William Henry Green and B.B. Warfield in their discussion in the two articles that were mentioned in the last class hour. Now, I've given you summaries of their articles and four propositions, the last of which was, quote, The numbers introduced into these genealogies may give an impression of having chronological significance, but in reality they have no bearing on chronology. They simply serve to indicate the lifespan and age with which childbearing began. So, picking up from that point, let's go on to number five. Quote, if you total the years in Genesis 11, using them for the purpose of chronology, then Shem would still be living in the time of Abraham, and from the flood to Abraham would be 292 years, end quote. In other words, if you use the Genesis 11 genealogy for chronological purposes and work down the genealogy in this kind of fashion, here's Shem. Then Shem gives birth to a son. If you add these up over periods of time, and if you total that up, you get 292 years. Now, that seems very unlikely from the biblical record to have worked this way if you use the genealogy for a non-gap chronology, which is often done from Noah to Abraham. We'd start here with Shem after the flood, two years after the flood. Shem gives birth to Arphaxad, which we discussed in the last class hour, so you take the 2 and then add 35, 30, 34, 30, 38, and you step it on down. You have 10 links there. The total would come out to the point when Abraham was born, 292 years later. Now this 1656 years is on the assumption that you have behind that Genesis 5, from Adam to Noah. Then you step it on down from there, and it would be only 292 years from the flood to Abraham. Now reflect a minute on the biblical material about Abraham. He's pulled out of Ur of the Chaldees, out of a heathen background, and told to go to Haran, eventually told to go down into the land of Canaan. The Bible gives no indication of others from the ark still living. Noah, on this basis, would have been alive well into the time of Abraham because Noah lived 350 years after the flood, and Shem himself, Noah's son, would have outlived Abraham, since Abraham was 175 when he died. Shem gave birth to Arphaxad two years after the flood and lived for 500 years beyond that. And almost every one of these individuals, in fact, every one of them, would have been alive during the lifetime of Abraham if you use all those links all the way down through. We don't get any indication in the Bible that that was the picture during Abraham's time. I'm going to go a bit further. The next problem is 290 years before the time of Abraham, who was approximately 2000 B.C., there's no evidence of a flood in Mesopotamia of the scale indicated by the Genesis flood account. We've discovered in the village settlements in Mesopotamia 
in the cities, the civilizations, by the successive layers that can be traced back, and there's no indication of an interruption of a flood. There are flood deposits, but they are local little things, one time here and another time somewhere else. Not any kind of general flood that affected all civilization within 290 years, but even prior to that. But the point is, if you go back, you can have civilizations fairly well established by 3000 BC in Mesopotamia, and you can trace the successive developments of that civilization without any interruptions. The same is true in Egypt. Egypt can be traced back in their civilizations even longer than 3000 BC, in fact, 4000 BC or so. Yet there is no indication of interruption of the flood. You just don't have the time if you want to place that flood in that sort of historical period. Only 292 years between Noah and Abraham? You don't have anything back about 2300 B.C. Warfield says, page 247, of, quote, The two genealogies, but particularly this last one, there is a symmetrical arrangement in groups of ten, both ten links, Genesis 5 and Genesis 11, is indicative of their compression. For all we know, instead of twenty generations and two thousand years measuring the interval between creation and the birth of Abraham, two hundred generations and something like twenty thousand years or even two thousand Generations and something like 200,000 years may have intervened, end quote. Now, he's not trying to set a date. In fact, Warfield really thinks, as far as the antiquity of some of these things, it's less far back than some other people do. But what he is establishing is the principle that you can't set that from the biblical information. You can't specify, well, it was at this date, or it could only go to this limit and couldn't go to that limit. It's all speculative because of the nature of the material you're working with. The Bible does not give us the data to place dates either on the creation events or the flood. Those are the two points which are crucial points. So he says, quote, In a word, the scriptural data leave us wholly without guidance in establishing the time which elapsed between the creation of the world and the deluge, and between the deluge and the life of Abraham. So as far as scriptural assertions are concerned, we may suppose any length of time to have intervened between these events, which may otherwise be reasonable, quote. That's a key statement, and I think that's the heart of the issue. As far as the scripture is concerned, we may suppose any length of time to have intervened between these events, which may otherwise be reasonable. In other words, if you want to establish a date for creation, if you want to establish a date for the flood, you're going to have to do that with data other than biblical data. Whatever the other data may suggest, that is the evidence that you have to go on. It's not a theological issue. It's not a problem of biblical interpretation, per se, because the biblical materials don't address it. It's only if you are going to force this genealogical material into a chronological purpose 
that you can have the scriptures addressing this issue. Since it doesn't, then you have to settle the problem with extra-biblical data, whatever that may be. Of course, I'm sure you are aware when you get into the question, you get the young earth people and the old earth people, which isn't so much speaking about the date of the origin of man, but the date of creation. At what point in time did man appear in the earth compared to when the earth was created is a whole other question. But the young earth people and the old earth people argue and get into flood geology versus more traditional attempts at interpreting the geological strata of the earth and what the kinds of time frames are involved in that. I think that debate is certainly legitimate, but it has to be carried out on its own merits. It's not a theological question or exegetical question. We'll come back to that a bit later. For this point, I think that what Warfield and Green are saying to me is what is significant. These questions of date of creation and date of the flood are not theological issues. They cannot be settled by biblical data. Therefore, it's an open question. Because it's an open question, I think that we need to be very careful about making someone's view of dates of creation and dates of flood some kind of test of orthodoxy or biblical faithfulness. Scripture doesn't address it. Therefore, it's not a theological question. I'm inclined to say that Genesis chapter 6 and 9 present a global flood, but I'm not inclined to include that all the earth was covered because you get into an argument of what the term, quote, all, end quote, means. Is it, quote, all, end quote, within a circumscribed frame of reference? We will look at some texts that will follow that out, because there are other places that say when Joseph was administering the food to Egypt, quote, all the nations of the earth came to him for food, end quote. That's the same kind of phraseology that is used with the flood. Now, would we say there were people coming from China to buy food from Joseph? I don't think so. I think it's all the countries within the eastern Mediterranean region. So I think you have to be careful what you base an argument on for the global flood. We will discuss that later. If there was a global flood, then I think the next question, geologically speaking, is, where's the evidence for it in the strata? I can't tell you that. I have not ever seen anyone point to the geological evidence for that other than the flood geologists like Whitcomb and Morrist, who are its most popular advocates, claiming the entire crust of the earth with all the strata are to be explained by the one-year flood. Then there's a question whether that is a convincing argument. Again, that's a scientific matter not a biblical one. There's nothing in Genesis 6-9 to that talks about flood geology. So then, when you argue that it's not a theological issue, and that it's an issue between geologists and how they interpret the strata, how they were deposited, what evidence supports that conclusion, and what conclusions one can draw from that evidence, it is up for question. We'll come back to that. 
I'm not going to discuss that in any detail because I'm not a geologist. There's where you get yourself at the mercy of experts. But I have read some of that material, and I'm inclined to think the flood geology has weaknesses and it doesn't really hold. Where is the evidence? I'm implying that perhaps it's way back and maybe evidence has been lost in the course of time with erosion and various factors that we just don't have. While we can't point to the strata and say, quote, here's the flood, end quote, that doesn't mean, at least to me, that there wasn't a flood. I think there was on the basis of scripture. I would go with this last statement of Warfield's, quote, we may suppose any length of time to have intervened which may otherwise appear reasonable, end quote. So whatever evidence there is that can be turned up scientifically addressing that issue is valid as long as it rests on a good basis. So the Bible doesn't address the issue, and any conclusion you draw is going to have to be based on extra-biblical evidence. You can take that evidence wherever it leads you. Student comment. Well, isn't that opening up to evolutionary theory or origins? The noise response. I don't think so. I think that the assumption has often been that you allow for long periods of time. The reason for doing it is to accommodate the evolutionists. I think some reverse the thing and say that there weren't long periods of time providing the evolutionary theory failed. But on the other hand, you can say, just because there are long periods of time, it doesn't mean you must accept evolution. I don't accept evolution, and there are many others who don't yet, who do accept long periods of time for the presence of man on earth, and yet reject evolutionary theory. Student comment. In a sense, you are giving them the grounds for the argument. Benoit's response. That's just one factor. Time. But it's by no means the only factor. There are a lot of other things that have to work together. Student comment. Is this genealogy unique? By that I mean, how does it compare to others from this period? Would readers have understood this to have gaps? Benoit's response. I think you could say that, see, until the scientific discovery began to examine things like strata and the earth, and to get ideas about time and, of course, evolutionary theory arose, until all those questions arose, nobody ever really paid that much attention to these things. In other words, the scientific data, and I'm not including evolutionary, but scientific data, has compelled people to look closer at the biblical material and to reflect on it more. And I think that has certainly been a factor in coming to an understanding that this doesn't necessarily mean a non-gap chronology. You don't want science to rule over scripture in an unwarranted way. But on the other hand, scientific developments can be a motivation to take a closer look at scripture and see exactly what it says. When you look at scripture, you have to be careful not to make it say either more or less than it actually says. You should not read things into it and make assumptions that are invalid. Let's look at what it actually says. And when you look at the terminology that is used, quote, son, end quote, quote, bear, end quote, and quote, beget, end quote, 
and you look at other genealogies and see the general character of biblical genealogies, you see it is designated to trace line of descent. Hence, the general character is compression, not a full or complete listing. Then I think that is a natural conclusion. We need not force these genealogies into just ten links. In fact, I think that if you have king lists in Babylon, which would be much later than this, but as far as I'm aware, the interest in line of descent is something uniquely biblical in this period of time. B on your sheet is, quote, a few additional considerations, end quote. Some of this we've already touched on. But first, just for the sake of argument, if you take the traditional date of the creation that comes out of using these genealogies for chronological purposes at about 4000 BC, there is a conflict in that we know that there were developed civilizations in Egypt and Mesopotamia at 3000 BC. From these civilizations at 3000, you know that both the flood and the confusion of the language at the Tower of Babel had to have taken place prior to that because there wasn't any uniform language in those Mesopotamian cultures or Egyptian cultures. So all that had to happen after the flood and the confusion of tongues at the Tower of Babel had to have taken place prior to that. Then if you take a non-gap chronology and chart Genesis 5 and the same thing we did with Genesis 11 a minute ago from Adam to Noah and you step that down to creation at zero, then you're going to come up to the flood at 1656. So if you have 3,000 years here, and at 1656, you're already at the flood, and the present is 4,656, so you already don't have enough time. I've used the most conservative possible figures. So there is just no way you can fit it in. Now, do you then conclude that there is a conflict between scripture and historical knowledge? I don't think so. There were village settlements in Mesopotamia as early as 5000 BC, and Jericho dates back to 8000 BC. There is no evidence of an intervening flood. What's the conclusion? Not that there's a conflict between science and scripture, but that this is not the proper way to use these genealogies. They are not intended to serve as chronologies. Now, back in the late 1800s, people faced this problem initially in some interesting ways. This book, it's a very anti-Christian book called The History of the Warfare of Science with Technology in Christendom by Andrew Dixon White. He sort of summarizes here all the ways in which science and the Bible had clashed, and of course, he's convinced as a scientist who thinks he has proved the Bible to be unreliable. But he discusses this thing of chronology on page 201 of his book, The History of the Warfare of Science with Theology in Christendom. He says, quote, It became evident that whatever system of scripture chronology was adopted, Egypt was the seed of a flourishing civilization at a period before the flood of Noah, and that no such flood had interrupted it. It was soon clear that civilization of Egypt began earlier than the time assigned for the creation of man. 
even according to the most liberal sacred chronologists, end quote. C that is working on the old kind of chronology system, utilizing these genealogies for chronology, and people began to become aware of that. Well, what did they do with it? He cites one interesting example. On page 232, he says that, quote, Mr. Southall, showing great ingenuity in learning in his book published in 1875 titled The Recent Origin of the World, grapples with the difficulties presented by the early date of Egyptian civilization. The keynote of his argument is the statement made by an eminent Egyptologist at a period before archaeological discoveries were well understood that, quote, Egypt lacks the idea of a rude Stone Age or Polystone Age, a Bronze Age, and an Iron Age, to scorn, end quote. Mr. Southall's method was substantially that of the late Mr. Gossa in genealogy. Mr. Gossa, as the readers of this work may remember, felt obliged in the supposed interest of Genesis to urge that safety to men's souls might be found in believing that 6,000 years ago, the Almighty, for some unscrutable purpose, suddenly set Niagara pouring very near the spot where it is pouring now, laid and bury the various strata, sprinkled the fossils through them like plums through pudding, scratched the glacial brooms upon the rocks, did a vast multitude of things, subtle and cunning, little and great in all parts of the world, required to delude geologists of modern times into the conviction that all these things were the results of steady process through long epochs. In other words, creation with the appearance of age. There was a geological solution to a geological problem. White says, quote, On a similar plan, Mr. Southall proposed, in the very beginning of his book, as a final solution to the problem, that the declaration of Egypt was in high civilization, in the time of Mena, with its racist classes and institutions, arrangements, language, and monuments, all indicating an evolution through a vast period of history, was a sudden creation, which came fully from the hand of the Creator to use his own words. Quote, the Egyptians had no Stone Age. They were born civilized, end quote. So that's just one illustration of an early attempt to try to harmonize. I don't think it's very convincing. The tragedy of the thing is you're not forced to do that. You don't have to do that kind of thing because it is based on a misunderstanding of the purpose of why this material in Genesis 5 and Genesis 11 was placed in Scripture. I think Warfield and William Henry Green saying this is not a theological issue and that scripture does not tell us this, have eliminated all these kinds of sophistry. And not only, as far as I'm concerned, with the civilization issue, with respect to time, but also with respect to geological strata. That's one additional consideration, and a second that is very closely related to it. In Genesis chapter 10, you have a table of nations, which traces the geographic distribution of people from Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, interestingly enough, Genesis 10 
is put between the end of the flood and before the Tower of Babel, even though what's described in Genesis 10 has material pertaining to conditions subsequent to the Tower of Babel. In other words, all these nations, languages, and tongues didn't exist prior to Babel. But the point of including it prior to chapter 11 is simply that at the end of chapter 9, you have reference to Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the three sons of Noah. And here it's going to trace out what the outcome of the three sons of Noah was, and how different people were settled in different places as descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Look, for example, at Genesis chapter 10, verse 21 and following. Quote, Sons were born to Shem, whose oldest brother was Japheth. Shem was the ancestor of all the sons of Eber. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arphaxad, Lud, and Aram, the sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Hether, and Meshach. Arphaxad was the father of Shelah, and Shelah was the father of Eber. From Shem come such people as Asher and Elam, for example. Those were groups of people that lived long before the time of Abraham. They had their own languages. They were developed as peoples and nations with languages that differ. Again, if you take this non-gap chronology of Genesis chapter 11, you only have 292 years between the end of the flood and the birth of Abraham. How could all these nations and peoples and languages have developed in only 292 years. It just doesn't fit there. The Elamites were a strong people long before 2000 BC, as were the people of Asher. A third consideration. The Bible does not combine the numbers of the years in the genealogies. In other words, it doesn't add up from Shem to Abraham giving 292 years. It doesn't do that. It doesn't give you a total. It seems to me, if the purpose was chronology, you would get a total. In the census, the figure of numbers I have alluded to in the last class hours, you get how many males are 20 years older and up in each of the tribes, and at the end, you get a total. It does total them up, but here you don't have that. So I think that also suggests that that was not the intent. There's another problem in Matthew chapter 1, verses 2 through 17. I believe you get that original brief heading, quote, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, end quote, expanded into 42 links divided into three units of 14 each. So it's schematic. If you compare, for example, verse 8, quote, Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, end quote. If you compare verse 8 with the Old Testament, you see that three kings are passed over, and Jehoram is said to be the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, in reality, was the great-great-grandson of Jehoram. So again, the use of the, quote, begat, end quote, must mean, quote, become an ancestor of, end quote. But then that adds another implication, because you go to verse 17, you read, quote, Thus there were fourteen generations in all 
from Abraham to David, and 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to Christ, end quote. The quote all, end quote there, I don't think meant that these are, quote, all, end quote, the generations that lived. It must mean all those enumerated by Matthew in this schematic arrangement. I don't know what else you can do with it, because you can clearly compare verse 8 with the Old Testament in Second Kings chapter 8, verse 24. There you find that Jehoram's son in Second Kings 8.24 was not Uzziah, but Ahaziah, and Joash was the son of Ahaziah, and Amaziah was the son of Joash, and the Uzziah comes as a son of Amaziah. Let's go on to Roman numeral number three. Quote, the world before Abraham. The primeval history from Genesis 1 through 11, end quote. Just a couple comments generally about Genesis chapters 1 through 11. In Genesis chapters 1 through 11, we are concerned with events prior to otherwise recorded history. When you get to Genesis chapter 12, you are in the time of Abraham. Abraham lives at a time when biblical history can be correlated with secular history. He lives in a time where we have sources other than the Bible, historical sources. But in Genesis chapters 1 to 11, we are dealing with things that happened in a time prior to otherwise recorded history outside the Bible. At the same time, we're dealing in Genesis chapters 1 through 11 with some of the most basic questions of human existence, in particular chapters 1 to 3 with creation and the fall, and then those in chapter 11 with the development of different languages and the distribution of people. So I think we can say that particularly with Genesis 1 to 3, but also generally with Genesis chapters 1 through 11, that we have some of the most important chapters in the entire Bible. So let's begin to look at it, and we'll begin to deal here with the biblical text. A is, quote, the creation of the universe in Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3, end quote. Just to comment on that particular division of material, chapter 1, 1 to 2, 3, I didn't make the break at the end of chapter 1, I carried it over into chapter 2 to the third verse. As you're aware, I'm sure, chapter and verse divisions are not something original to the text. They have been inserted subsequently, and in many cases you can find better breaking points than the ones that have traditionally been followed. A better dividing place for the first section of Genesis is chapter 2, verse 3. The reason for that is verse 4 of Genesis begins with the phrase that becomes the phrase that structures the rest of the book. That phrase is, quote, these are the generations of, end quote, in the King James Version. In the NIV, which I'm looking at, it says, quote, this is the account of the heavens and the earth, end quote. What you have as far as the structure of the book of Genesis is creation in chapter 1, verse 1 to 2, verse 3. And you could say, that this is the first section of the book. The second section of the book would be 2-4 to the end of the book, and that is divided into ten sections. Each one is introduced with the phrase, quote, 
these are the generations of, end quote. The first one of those sections begins here at Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. Quote, these are the generations of the heaven and the earth, end quote. The second section begins at chapter 5, verse 1, quote, these are the generations of Adam, end quote. And chapter 6, verse 9 is the third one, quote, these are the generations of Noah, end quote. Now the NIV says, quote, this is the account of Noah, end quote. We'll discuss that phrase later, but my point here is, structurally speaking, the book of Genesis falls into those blocks of material introduced by that phrase regularly throughout the book. So it's better to make that phrase your dividing point in each section. Not only is that the dividing point of the section, it's sort of set off from the rest of the book as an introductory section of great importance, the creation. So you have the creation of the heavens and the earth in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, 3. And then you have the generations, you might say, that follow it in chapter 2, verses 4, to the end of the book, in ten sections of generations. Number one under A is, quote, general teaching about God, end quote. You notice what I'm going to do here in 1, 2, and 3 is just give you a summarization of, quote, general teaching about God, end quote. Quote, the general teaching about the universe, End quote, and then, quote, the general teaching about mankind, end quote. That's found in the first chapter of Genesis. I'm not going to dwell on this in any great detail, but just give some general principles in these areas as we find in Genesis chapter 1. I might say before doing that, the Wellhausen School and the JDP analysis assign Genesis 1 to the P document, which is the latest material because it has a very sophisticated God concept in Genesis chapter 1 that couldn't have been earlier but had to be late. P material is written in the exile or even after the exile according to the critical school. Genesis 2 is assigned to J, which would be the earliest, so you move from sophisticated to most primitive of the material. The reason I said that is that I want to discuss that issue when we get to chapter 2. I just mentioned it at this point. All right, under, quote, general teaching about God, end quote, A, quote, God's existence is assumed, end quote. That's interesting in itself. If you compare biblical material with extra-biblical mythologies, what you find in the extra-biblical mythologies are stories that tell how the gods came into existence themselves. The story that is most often compared with Genesis is the Enuma Elish. We'll talk more about that later. You'll read about it in Finnegan. The Enuma Elish is a Babylonian creation story, and in it you have two principles of living, uncreated matter, Tiamat and Ipsu. It's from Tiamat and Ipsu, who were the mother and the father of all the gods, that this whole pantheon of Babylonian deities are born, and then you get all the family and so forth that develop out of that. In Genesis, God's existence is assumed, and you contrast that then with the extra-biblical mythologies, and there's an enormous difference because what you read in Genesis 1-1 is that beautiful, majestic statement, 
quote, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, end quote. See, it doesn't tell you anything about how God came into existence. His existence is assumed. Quote, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, end quote. B, quote, monotheism is presupposed, end quote. And in that sense, it is taught. I wouldn't say there is any explicit theoretical kind of teaching about monotheism in Genesis 1. It's assumed, so in that sense, it is taught. I already mentioned extra-biblical mythology tell of many different gods. You learn of wars and intrigues, battles, gods killing each other, and all kinds of things. You don't have any hint of that in Genesis 1. There are no other gods mentioned, and it seems like there is no possibility of any other gods. Quote, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. End quote. Now, the interesting thing is the term, quote, God, end quote, itself is, in Hebrew, is, quote, Elohim, end quote. The word Elohim has a plural ending. It's a plural noun form that designates God. Depending on the context in which that word appears, it can be translated either singular or plural. See, the very same word, Elohim, could be used in the context of the gods of the Canaanites. Then you would translate it plural with a small, quote, G, end quote. But that term, when used of Israel's God, even though it's a plural noun, is used with a singular verb and singular modifiers, which goes against, you might say, the structure of the language. You would choose a singular verb with a singular modifier in that first statement, quote, in the beginning God created, end quote. The verb is serving as a singular, not a plural verb. It's not, quote, in the beginning God's created, end quote even though the noun is a plural form, quote, in the beginning, God created, end quote. It is a singular verb, and when modifiers are attached to the noun, they are singular. Elohim takes singular modifiers. Now, I see my time is up. Let me just make a brief statement, and we'll dismiss. Some understand that plurality to suggest plurality within the Godhead but it is better taken as a plural of majesty. We'll continue on next time. This ends Dr. Robert Vinoy's Old Testament History, Lecture Number 4. Mm -hmm.